Hi, I'm Teresa Wiesar, your host of One in Ten. In this episode, Moving Equity to the Center of Child Welfare, I speak with Dr. Jessica Price, Director of the Institute for Child Welfare at Florida State University. Now, as child abuse professionals, we hear about child maltreatment cases every single day. And while our attention is focused, and appropriately so, on the child and family in front of us, do we give much thought to the child protection system itself? Do we even know the foundation that the system is built on? What do we understand about how family separation was baked into the model for Black and Indigenous children right from the very beginning? And how does that play out even to this very day? What would it mean and how would it change our work with families to center equity instead? To center community, to center the child's attachment to their little corner of the world. And most importantly, how might we radically change the experience for children in those sad circumstances when they can't remain at home by simply asking the powerful question, who else loves this child? For practical information you can use right this very minute and a thought-provoking conversation you'll be reflecting on for days, please take a listen. Dr. Price, it's great to see you again. Welcome to One in Ten. Thank you so much for having me. So for our listeners and those who might not have been at the conference, can you just share a little bit about how you came to this work at the intersection of equity and child welfare? Sure. I will start with the short story. So I used to be a protective investigator here in Florida. So I was on the front lines and, you know, receiving reports and meeting families, in my opinion, in some pretty distressful situations and did that for a couple of years and experienced what you all know, turnover and burnout and stress. So when I resigned and started to work on my PhD, I really committed to looking at workforce issues. Because as a worker, in my first year, we lost half our training class and we inherited their cases. So I just became really committed to how do we improve the workforce? How do we help child protective investigators make better decisions? How do we make them feel more supported in their decisions? So that was lending itself to me researching commitment, researching training and education, and also racial disparity. Mainly it started with racial disparity internally. You know, how do black workers engage with their supervisors? Why are black workers in some areas leaving faster and things like that around DEI and culture? And then I had the opportunity when I was working in New York to look at decision making, which was also an interest of mine. What goes into a private investigator and their decision about what happens with a family? And we found in that research that often biases are a part of that decision-making process. You know, one of the things I was struck by in preparing for this interview and in your conversation at our leadership conference was really the conversation that we had about sort of the foundations of the system itself, the sort of history and context of the child protection system and how we may not really think about what that means for the present. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I talk about this so much because I know that a lot of people want to forget the past and they don't understand why we talk about it and why we want to bring it to the forefront. It's incredibly important because of a lot of reasons. I'll just talk about two. You know, one of the reasons is we don't want to repeat the past. You know, we don't want to do 
the harm and perpetuate the oppression that was, you know, a part of the historical nature of this country. And secondly, we also want to be able to measure where we're going, right? So we don't want to replicate the past. We want to be able to look at the past and look what we're doing now and be able to see we're making a difference and see we're not repeating that same sort of, again, systemic oppression of marginalized families. When child welfare was created, and I take my students through this when we talk about policy, when child welfare was created, it wasn't created for black families. You know, families were excluded. They weren't even allowed to go into certain, during that time, the terminology was orphanages. Now we call it group homes or foster care. You know, they went an entirely different track, often inferior services, inferior orphanages for them. And that was the foundation of our system. You know, have we evolved? Absolutely. But we need not do anything that resembles this inequity, that resembles some kids getting certain things, some families getting another. You know, one of the things that I remembered um, from your presentation at leadership was a slide you had basically showing some building blocks within the child protection system. And it really was thought provoking about, you know, if you build a system with certain ingredients, you can't be surprised, essentially, when that manifests itself in the present. Can you think of an example to share about something that was sort of baked into the system that you see manifesting itself today in ways that are really unhealthy for Black families? Yeah. What comes to mind is the Social Security Act of 1935. We're all really aware of it. It created ADC and AFDC. And I wasn't able to go into that much detail at the conference, but you know these policies were created to help families in need. It was called the Aid to Families of Dependent Children. So what social scientists realized over the course of two or three decades of looking at who got access to that was that there were some morality and suitability clauses where you had to be suitable, you had to do certain things that were moral, So these social scientists that researched who got access to these benefits realized that if you were a young, unwed African-American woman with children, you often were denied services or you were provided services for a shortened amount of time and then arbitrarily lost your services. So there were these suitability, heteronormative sort of standards that they wanted certain people to reach. Today, in many areas of our country, there are still these standards that are informed by often historical policies that, again, that term heteronormative is really impacting certain decisions. So today in child welfare, there are so many families that are struggling through poverty, right? And, you know, there's this term called the worthy poor because some families in the child welfare system come into the child welfare system because their parents are having a hard time meeting basic needs and the system approaches them differently. They provide those needs, right? They might get them connected to services, right? They might partner with them in a way that is empowering. But then there are a subset of people in this country that are also struggling through poverty, often Latinx families, Native American families, Black families. And when they come into the system, sometimes their families are separated because of things like housing, because of things connected to domestic violence and mental illness, that's impacting their socioeconomic trajectory. So that's an example that comes to mind, this idea of historically there are these morality, suitability requirements, at least nebulously in our minds. And there's also something today about who gets the help and who doesn't. 
You know, this conversation is reminding me of um, one that I had with another one of our guests who was talking about, and I hadn't thought about it before, but talking about things baked into the system. It was talking about that in many states, because they haven't revised their definitions of child abuse in a long time, basically since the 70s, many of them define neglect in a way that's almost a textbook definition of poverty. And so even if you could exclude bias, you would still have all of these families coming into the system because of racialized poverty in this country. And so I thought that that was a really, you know, in both of your cases, what you've described, I think reminds us about the need to really look at these foundational issues and also think about the fact that there may be old laws that are long overdue for an updating because of what's being carried into the present because of them. So thinking for a moment about you know, what would a child protection system look like that centered equity? What would we expect to see or be building toward if we sort of turned this upside down a little bit and said, what we're really interested in is centering equity in our work? The first thing that comes to mind is making sure that people understand, you know, the difference between equality and equity. I think people, you know, when it comes to mind, that photograph that floated around and went viral a couple of years ago with the youth that were trying to look over and see a, a baseball game. And the idea is if we give folks the same exact thing, they still don't have enough. You know, some families still won't have what they yes. need. So when, when, you, when we ask ourselves about what would child welfare look like if it centered equity, it would have this adaptive lens. And we would throw out one size fits all. You know, we would be adaptive in our approach to families and we would zero in on what does this family need, not what do we have to offer, not what the community already has. You know, what do they need and then what can we advocate or create on their behalf? But with that mentality, Teresa, we'd have to really think about the workforce and how to free up time for case managers, free up time for folks that work at CACs, free up time for these people that have 20, 30 open cases that they're trying to work on, where they only have time right now for cookie cutter services. They mm -hmm. only have time right now to tell a family, these are some services in the community, I think you should go look into that. But if we were to really shift how we're freeing up time of these professionals to say, no, I have the time to sit here, listen with a cultural humility about myself, so I can hear what's going on. I talk a lot about root cause analysis, what's really going on and what can we do to address it? You know, one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about is sort of beyond referral, you know, go find that resource. There's so many problems, I think, with that. First of all, we ourselves have trouble finding resources. <laughs> and so telling someone else, just go look for that resource, um, the likelihood that they're gonna have the time to do that or that the resource even exists. I was thinking about housing as you were talking about, you know, the way that that can be a challenge. And here in Washington, D.C., affordable housing is an enormous challenge. And so if someone has, for example, a Section 8 voucher, you can't say to them, even if that were substandard housing, go find someplace else because there's not someplace else. You know, there's a wait list three years long for the someplace else. And so it just seems to me that sometimes we're making a referral to something that doesn't exist. It's like an imaginary referral. You know, it'd be great if you'd go check that out, except the thing we're telling them to check out isn't actually available. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought that up because I get questions from people when I talk about those broader issues, like you just brought up housing, where people say, 
what can we do about housing? We're CPS, we're, we're child welfare, you know, and I think that the problem seems so multi-layered. And so I wanted to comment on the fact that there are so many intersecting systems that yes. are impacting families and it sometimes feels impossible. But what I try to encourage folks in our field to think about is the relationship that we can have with families. Can we impact Section 8? I don't know if we can. Can we impact you know, certain things that are going on with employment, underemployment? I mean, right now, the enormous gas prices that are impacting families yes. that are already struggling. What can we do about those things? Maybe not so much tangibly, but what we can do is make sure that when we're interacting with families, we're having a humanistic lens, that we are compassionate, that we are validating to them face to face. What you're dealing with is a lot. And I'm not here to penalize you. I'm not here to vilify you. I want to walk alongside you and figure out how to provide some level of resource to ease your suffering. And I think that for people to hear that, it makes them feel, okay, I can do that. You know, I can't impact housing, yeah. I can't, but I can make sure the person in front of me doesn't walk away feeling silenced, doesn't walk away feeling oppressed, doesn't walk yes. away feeling invisible. Or that we're giving them just impractical ideas. I can think, you know, at a completely different level. But when people have made recommendations to me that were just sort of, I was like, there is no way, you know, it's like, you can't even really take that in. And so I think if we're working with families in a way that we're making sure that what we're recommending that they do is something that they can actually do, and that there's a practical likelihood that it is doable, I think is also really important in terms of families not feeling overwhelmed by the challenges that they face every day. And that there's a value added. You know, we're dealing with that in, in our state, slightly different because we're trying to provide support to child welfare professionals. And we're trying to, you know, make sure they have what they need so they're working more efficiently and more collaboratively with families. But we're also having that same issue. We don't want to overburden child welfare professionals, just like we don't want to overburden families. So we're having really keen conversations around how do we make sure what we're offering is a value added that is clear not another training, not another, you know, sort of thing that I have to put yeah. my time into. But I think it's the same parallel process. Families need to see it. Like you said, it's practical and it's relevant to them. Sometimes when people bring you these things, it's kind of like, well, I can't do anything about the macro system. You know what I mean? Like, what am I going to do about that? And it's just sort of like, well, on the one hand, that's true. And you should focus on helping families in a very practical way. And secondly, you can vote. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I just sort of don't give up, maybe because I really care about and like policymaking as much as I do. But it's sort of like, you know, our mayoral race wound up being about that. And so that's good in terms of holding policymakers accountable for creating the kinds of communities we want to have and really looking at the policies that affect homelessness and housing and all of those kinds of things. So we may not be able to directly affect it, but we can influence who's in power that can affect it. And I think, you know, as child abuse professionals, we should never miss that opportunity to weigh in on these issues that we care about. I'm just wondering, you know, for those people who really want to create and contribute to creating a more equitable system overall, and they're sort of thinking about where do I even begin <laughs> that journey? You know, I've listened to this, or I listened to you at leadership, or I watched your TED talk, and now I'm thinking, what, what can I do as an individual CAC worker, caseworker, victim advocate, whatever? Where would you tell them to start? 
I would tell them to start with building a community because I get that question a lot. So mm. people say, well, this was a great keynote or I really enjoyed that. Yeah. What do I do now? So I usually say we have to build a community of others who are also on the path because even after your efforts as a leader, my efforts as a leader, there are still going to be some people that say, I'm doing it the way I've always done it. So I wouldn't say gravitate to those people. I would say gravitate <laughs> to people who are saying, I really want to talk about how to share power. I really want to debrief this case with someone else because this family is very different from me and I don't want to miss something. So I want to debrief with a colleague. I always tell people, fine, even if it's one, two or three of you all to touch base on these topics if not every week, just have a standing meeting, grab coffee, say, hey, let's have lunch. Keeping these things at the forefront of your mind is going to help you, even if you feel like this is too overwhelming. Where do I start? But no, we have a standing meeting where we're going to grab coffee and we're going to say, let's think about power sharing. How'd you do that last week with those families, right? Let's think about how did we show understanding to this youth who's going through a lot already? Like, how are we thinking about equity in our work? It's so easy to go back to old habits and not talk about these things again. So I always tell people, first things first, try to have protected time, even half an hour. If you, I know people are saying there's no time, but we also have to make time for what's important, right? So just you know, even if it's half an hour, an hour on your calendars to say, hey, I just want some time to debrief that keynote we heard Dr. Price talking about, or I read this article in the paper about this family. Let's talk about it as a group and bring in those things we learned in that training or in things that you're talking about in your organizations in DC. And I'm sure you all are continuing to discuss certain topics as well that they can debrief with a small group of people. I'm wondering if you have seen some successful supervisory strategies as well, because I'm thinking aside from individuals sort of building community, which I think is vital, there's also the piece of it that supervisors have an interesting window into what is going on across cases, across employees too? And so is there some equity lens that supervisors should be applying to this as well? Absolutely. And interestingly enough, I get this question where people say, my supervisor doesn't really want to talk about this. Or, and my, my read of that is maybe they are overwhelmed. And mm-hmm. I, I'm always hoping that people aren't just shutting this conversation down completely. But People feel like I, I want to do the things that you're teaching us and that you're training us on, but I don't have the supervisory support. So I'm glad you brought that up because they are so key. They're so important for people on the front line to actually feel empowered to change the things they're doing. They have to feel like they have support. So I encourage supervisors to equip themselves, go to their upper leadership if they need more equipping, but be able to have an understanding and have the language to tell your team I don't have all the answers. I'm not an expert on this, but I support your desire to connect more meaningfully with families and to listen to them in a way that maybe we haven't had the bandwidth in the past. Maybe that means supervisors encourage, you know, their workers to spend an extra 20 minutes with this family and and we'll figure out how to, you know, cover some of your other things. I think it's it's, it's radical to say that because some people are saying we don't have enough time to do that. But that takes a brave supervisor to say, I want my team to know I support them. And I want my team to know that I'm going to do what I can to add 10 to 15 minutes to their day so they can spend more time with that youth or their family. I don't know if that helps a bit, but I have encouraged supervisors to do what they can to articulate that they support 
their workers who are trying to make some differences because some workers just don't feel like they can. They feel very constrained and conflicted on what can they do and what can't they do. I think it's such a good point that having senior leader support makes all the difference in trying to make these shifts and feeling comfortable and like you're not putting your job on the line when you are making those shifts. So I, you know, I completely agree with that. I also wonder, I'm thinking about supervision meetings, you know, something gets talked about during that time, right? Is it possible to add questions to that or to ask questions in a way where you're really looking at carefully, not just what people are doing with families by way of keeping kids safe, but also if what they're doing is approached with an equity lens as well. And that requires a shift too, you know, because it requires a shift in the questions you're answering and the case file review that you're doing and any of that, like, what are you looking for? I think can be different too in that way. And I think for CACs, I would encourage them to think about when they're doing case review, you know, what are you talking about as it relates to families? And are you bringing this to the table as well? What's coming to mind is vision. You know, I work with organizations around the country on what is your vision for equity? And then if we're going down to the supervisor level, what is your leadership vision for how you're going to propel the equity agenda forward? So I believe that supervisors, middle managers, they need some type of vision that they work on. And then that vision is their compass. In their supervisory meetings, that vision will create prompts to ask their staff. An example could be, you know, we're trying to really focus in on equity. So can we talk about that with one of your cases? Or asking one of their supervisees, you know, we just did an implicit bias training. How have you used some of that content in some of your families and some of your cases? Asking very directly. And I think it would show their supervisees, oh, my boss is asking me how I'm considering my own personal values or how was it working with that Native American family? Did I ask a colleague for assistance? It's, it's about building new habits. And I think that supervisors need to be able to continue to cultivate the new habits that we're trying to build. So I encourage writing a vision and being really clear about what you stand for as a supervisor, and it'll help you in your conversations with your supervisees. When you're talking to child welfare groups around the country, are you finding that they're hungry for this information and that they're engaged or sort of what's the reaction that you're getting? The overwhelming majority of people are convinced that it's time to do something. So I will say that there is lots of motivation and there are just a lot of people saying, I don't know what to do, but we've got to do something. You know, they they Mm -hmm. finally are saying that, right? We've known this for years, what's going on with equity, but I think the majority of folks that I'm engaging with are saying it's time. Now, I would say that half of those people know that it's time, recognize the need, but they don't feel it's possible. And what I mean by that is Mm. there are so many competing policies, operational Mm. procedures. There's so much going on within our communities. There's limited resources. I mean, I have so many of them that reach out and say, we might separate this family. We might pull this kid from a home. We might make certain decisions, but it's because we don't have another way. We don't have Mm. another alternative, right? Mm. So we're doing this to make sure, and we can't really ensure a lot, but we feel this need to you know, make sure of certain things. So I do think that a lot of them feel constrained. We know it's time to do something, but until you go to Washington, I mean, they tell me to go where you are, <laughs> go to DC <laughs> and change this policy and change this rule. Yeah. And that's why I spend so much of my time 
you know, trying to impact our, our little ecosystems and our communities and our organizations and building in a DEI culture, building in mm-hmm. diversity, equity, inclusion, and how we interact with each other and then how we interact with the family in front of us. Now, we're hoping concurrently that things are changing in Washington by voting and by advocating and, and things like that. But I do think that a lot of people are ready and motivated, but I have to pull them over to the side of it might not be possible in the way that you think, but there are things you can do today to empower and value the family in front of you. Yes. Well, and I think focusing on the things you can change and that you do have control over is important, you know, just across the board in terms of not feeling helpless and hopeless and giving up on things that need to change. You know, one of the things that you talked about quite a bit in, I don't even remember which one of the presentations I watched, but I thought it was um, really insightful was around family separation. And so I want to talk about that a little bit because it's such an important policy it has such implications for kids in terms of their own attachments and outcomes that I think it's really it's it was really insightful to listen to you talk about that. So for one thing, can you just frame a little bit who is in, in this country in child welfare, who is most likely to be separated from their family? African-American families are most likely to be separated as well as Native American families. So those are the two groups that in most states are experiencing that. Now, Latinx families also, but in some states, not so much, but I would say those two groups. And it's not a recent phenomenon. Mm-mm. No, this goes back a long way, correct? Decades long. There've been several books written on disparity in child welfare. One of the seminal books that were published was in the early eighties. And it really mapped out the inequity within the system and particularly family separation among Black families. So this is something that has been going on for quite some time, but it's hard to change course when you're not enlightened and you haven't you know, been aware of certain things. You just felt like, well, this is what's happening because those parents are doing something wrong. As someone who's worked in the system, I have evolved in my thinking around the work because you're indoctrinated through training to see parents in a certain light. And I think that's changing in some areas. They're revamping training and they're revising these types of things. But, you know, when I went through training to prepare for my job, equity wasn't discussed. Trying to strengthen parents wasn't discussed. Parental capacity and the intersections of inequity that parents are like in the middle of, those things weren't discussed. And I think they're so important. So what can we do about it? I mean, we've seen these numbers. We know these numbers. The numbers are concerning. We know that kids don't have good outcomes when they're separated from all their loved ones and their community and their school and all those other things, and they're disconnected from them. But talk a little bit about successful strategies that you've seen to reduce family separation. Well, the first one that's coming to mind is the work that's going on in New York. It's behind blind removal meetings, and they decided to try to mitigate the bias that goes into family separation, where when they make that decision as a group, you know, when I made the decision when I was in child protective services, I often was on the phone with my supervisor and it was just the two of us deciding that. But in New York, they come together as a group, which has been hugely helpful to not feel alone in that big decision. In that conversation, they don't talk about identifying factors like race or ethnicity. They don't even talk about apartment buildings or neighborhoods, because those things have, you know, a connotation with some people, poor communities, or I don't want to go back to that area of town. So they don't talk about any of those things. They talk about what's going on with this family. They talk about what things might have impacted the parental, you know, issues right now. 
what are the strengths of the family. They talk about relevant history. And the conversation is really focused on what can we do to keep this family together to the best of our ability. And that sort of method, that strategy, they were able to decrease the numbers of Black families that were being separated by almost 50%. 50% less Black kids were going into foster care. And that's just one strategy that's being used in New York. It's also being currently done in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and there's a new pilot in Los Angeles County. So people are interested in doing something. And what we need is to know more evidence on it. Is this working? And can we create some more uh, pilots elsewhere? Yes. And if I remember right from that um, original study in New York, family separation rates dropped to what, 20% from 50, something like that, which was dramatic. I mean, it it wasn't as though it was a 5% drop, which still would have been important. It was this just completely surprising drop in it. And and go ahead. Yeah. And it's also important to know that over the course of their time doing this strategy, it was a very dramatic drop, like what you're talking about, that first iteration of the analysis. And then they realized that it went back up and oh then dear. it went down again, and then it went back up, and then it went down. Like it started to ebb and flow, and people started saying, oh, people started saying, oh, this isn't working. It isn't working. But what we were trying to remind people is, you know, blind removals isn't uh, the panacea. Yeah, it's not magic. It doesn't mean that it will... It doesn't mean it's steadily going to go down for all of eternity. What it means is the decisions that are made in that room are made without our personal bias. That's what we can, that's what we can say. We can say those decisions and some of those decisions might end up being, we have to separate this family, but they didn't make that decision because they've seen that mom three times. They didn't make that decision because they themselves had a bad day. Like we're human too, right? We didn't make that decision because we'd really like to go home to our kids. Because we want to see our kids tonight and we don't want to stay at the office to figure out, you know, what to do with this family. So I do think that it does a great job of keeping the main thing, the main thing when they're having that conversation. Well, and I think any bias you can remove from the system and its decision making can only be a plus, even if it turns out that once you remove that, there are other things you need to work on, like the support that families will need in order for kids to remain home. You know, that's always an issue, right? Like you can remove the bias, but if you don't have support, you could still see your numbers tick back up. I also think it's important to remind people that, you know, this is a tough job and we have to make certain decisions. And surely the CAC know about egregious things and things that you, you know, you have to make certain decisions based on child safety. But there's this saying, and I think I mentioned it at your conference, you know, asking yourself who already loves this child yes. is a good way to say you can't be in your nuclear family right now because of, you know, things that happened. But how do we ensure an uninterrupted sense of belonging for this child where we've seen amazing stories happen where teachers step up, neighbors step up, you know, people that aren't related, but there's this fictive kin that I've watched this little girl grow up for the last eight years down the road and I know her parents and I'm willing to step in so she can still get on the bus and see her teacher and see her friends every day while we're trying to work on her, her home and her families, you know? So I want people to think about that. We're not saying you can never do your job and, and make a safety decision, but we're saying do your due diligence to try to keep the child's world intact, which is already coming undone because of family separation. But what can we do to keep some things consistent? 
I just love that question. You know, who else loves this child? That's just such an important question to ask. And it opens up some possibilities that you might not initially think of when you're in that difficult situation. You know, when we kind of started on this journey at NCA looking at some of these questions, it was really because we were looking at data across different forms of child abuse and maltreatment. And we could see that strides had really been made in this country around child sexual abuse rates you know, dropping over time and interventions getting better and physical abuse had seen some of the same, but neglect has basically been unchanged for 40 years. It is so ripe for disruption. You know, when you think about it, it's like anything that you see where the numbers stay persistently high for 40 years, you're just like, what we're doing isn't working. (laughs) There's got to be some some shift in the model because we're not getting success with what we're doing currently. And I think you've outlined a number of the reasons why we're not having success currently. Yeah, and the thing about neglect is there are some people who are being revolutionary in their thinking around this, and they're saying, why does the child welfare system even deal with neglect? You know, neglect doesn't seem like this punishable or this maltreatment that should be seen through an investigative lens. So a lot of people are trying to figure out how do we even move neglect cases away from child protection and have it under a different umbrella, family well-being or community revitalization. Family support or whatever, yeah. Where, Where you're not coming into a child protection agency and being investigated, but you're going a different route where they're gonna say, we're gonna work on housing, we're gonna work on job, we're gonna work on trying to get you ready for employment. We're going to do a whole different thing in partnership with you. Yeah. Mental health care, substance abuse counseling, you know, whatever is the barrier to that. I think that that is such an important thing to look at, because if you also look at the child protection system, it's overwhelmed because 70% of its cases are neglect. So how can you pay proper attention to physical abuse and sexual abuse if you're completely inundated with, you know, Lots of families where the root issue is some combination of poverty, substance abuse, mental health issues, and domestic violence. So, Absolutely. I completely agree. I completely agree. I hope that I see that in my lifetime, that there's a separation of, of those things and child welfare can focus on what they should be focusing on. Let me ask you this. You know, we've talked a little bit about how policies sort of live into the present, and we don't want to forget the history of these things, but we also want the future to be different. If you were in front of a room full of policymakers, whether they're at the state level or you could address Congress as a whole, what do you think are some chief policies that are just ripe for a new solution, a disruption, some change? I mean, the first one that's coming to mind is ASFA, the Adoption and Safe Families Act. There are people working day and night to repeal it and to try to figure out how to change it, particularly those timeframes around which a parent has their rights terminated. We don't want to make it seem like we want kids languishing in care. We don't want that, but we we don't want to have a time frame to be the switch that, that starts the process of, of severing a, a parent to their child. I am often called to give testimony in TPR trials, and it mm-hmm. is a very, very difficult thing for everyone, including me, um, because I'm usually not successful. Usually my testimony is not successful and parents are still uh, have their rights terminated. Parents that are actively fighting for their child, which is why I'm called to be in the trial. They're they're clearly trying to figure out, provide people the opportunity to help them. 
And, you know, at the end of the day, they lose legal rights often because of the fact that a timeline started the process. The child reached this timeline and the court started to move toward preparing this child for adoption. So that's something that I would definitely bring up. I would say if we can't repeal ASFA as a whole, which might be a bit ambitious, there's a lot of things in ASFA, not just timelines. Can we adjust those types of things where a child may not be able to go back home at the 15 month mark, but can they go back to a family member? Oh, I see. Something. Mm -hmm. Why does that mean, okay, let's move toward adoption. Let's sever the rights. You know, why can't we start saying, Maybe the in-between period is grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, older sibling. Mm-hmm. Not, and again, all the cases that I've been a part of where I'm providing testimony for parents that are fighting for their rights, the alternative is adoption. When it seems so simple to say, well, who already loves this? You know, who, who, right. who's Back to that question. Who's in the family who can say, well, they're not ready yet, but we are. And um, you would think that these people don't have family, but sometimes in these trials, their family are there. You know, isn't that interesting? It is mind boggling for me personally that that happened. So that would come up probably immediate for me if I had the opportunity to talk about ASFA. I think secondly, I would bring up the Family First Prevention and Services Act, a landmark act that's uh, a couple Mm -hmm. of years old or three years old now, where I would say it's really important that we're diverting our resources to helping keep families out of foster care, you know, once they're in the system. Sure. But what can we do about primary prevention? How do we move mm-hmm. funding into communities where they're not coming into the system? Because family first, you know, it's it starts once they're in our system and then funding is more flexible now. But but what about before they even have a child abuse report, which has so much negative connotation to it? So many parents shut down when we come to your door with a clipboard, because I've been there, I've been at the doors, and they don't they don't want to hear anything we have to say because we're there accusing them of something pretty bad. Well, there's so much stigma and shame attached to it. And I mean, if the only way in this country you can get substance abuse treatment or mental health care is to go into our child protection system, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it's like there have to be other entry points mm-hmm. for parents who are feeling overwhelmed or don't have a resource or have never had a condition diagnosed or whatever that is. And I just think, you know, we're the ones who should be embarrassed about the lack of medical and mental health care and substance abuse counseling that exists in this country, which just underpins all of these things, including a lot of termination of parental rights cases, hinge in those things. I remember back in the day when I was a CASA director, I mean, the number of cases we had where the only mental health counseling that was available was very short term or the only substance abuse counseling was some, you know, 30 day stint and you're done and hopefully you're going to be well now. And, you know, is that really enough to get families back on a path that we want them to be on? I mean, honestly, most of the time, no, which the family knew before they even started. So I just, I I agree with you completely. The expectations are often missing the mark when we really think about what these families are going through and how long it takes even us when we are trying to build new habits and overcome things. It takes a while. And during the course of them trying to do case plans and change habits and, you know, another issue that comes up in a lot of these TPR hearings is bonding evaluations and how as these parents are working on case plans, their kids are often bonding with their foster parents. And I sit in these trials and I hear judges say, well, I can't take these kids away from their foster parents. I mean, they're really bonded. And I'm sitting in a trial, you know, listening to this happen. And the parents are there thinking, well, 
I've been trying to do what you asked me to do to get my kids back. So they don't see me as much as they see their foster parents. I mean, it's a clearly a bonding going on there, but that's also an issue, this idea of bonding evaluations. And I just recently did a presentation on it and I was interviewing psychiatrists who do them. Mm-hmm. And it was it was fascinating to hear them say, when I do these bonding evaluations, I can tell you what I'm going to find before I start. Yeah. These kids are going to be bonded with their foster parents. You know, they're, they're, we, right. the bond is very different now that they've been, you know, in this home and seeing someone day in and day out. And one quote sticks with me where one of the folks I interviewed said, you know, if, if there's no bond with this child and anyone in their biological family that's strong, then we have to realize that we played a part in breaking those bonds, right? Because what we're yes. essentially what we're essentially saying is this child is bonded strongly with their foster parents, but what about that child and their grandparents? What about that child and their aunt and uncles? You know, have we done our due diligence to keep visitation going throughout this time? Because if again, the quote said, if they've lost their bond with their family members, we had a part to play in that. Well, especially when we moved them out of their community and changed their school and made sure they couldn't get back to the church that they were in. And I mean, all of, you know, once you sort of disconnect someone, not only from their parents, but the entirety of their ecosystem, it's unsurprising that when that gets rebuilt elsewhere, they're going to have a connection there. The thing that I always thought about back in the day when I had that role as a CASA director was, but then what happens when they hit 18? You know, because yes, they may have this wonderful bond with their foster parents, but so many kids age out of that system and other things that you've got the problem of either sending kids on this giant search for their biological family later, which many go on, right? Mm -hmm. To figure out what happened, how it happened, um, and to feel a sense of roots. Or I think that the other thing is this kid is just disconnected in the world. You know, they're 18 or 21 and- that's it. Yeah. And I'll never forget, I went to a conference in Indianapolis and there was a gentleman that did the keynote. He did the morning keynote and I was speaking in the afternoon and he did such a wonderful job and he aged out of the foster care system. And he said the first thing he did was he went to go find his parents. His parents lost their legal rights to him. And he said that he was in three or four homes throughout the course of his adolescence. And he said every set of foster parents well-intentioned, were trying to connect with him and trying to be his parents, so to speak, right? Trying to be there for him. But he said he he wanted his parents. He wanted to at least see them and talk to them and know them. And and so it was just very, very moving. There wasn't a dry eye in the room. If you can imagine thinking someone ages out and goes to find the parents that he's been legally severed from. That is just the saddest journey. I can only imagine, you know, finding oneself in that position. I don't want to end our conversation, though, on that sad note. I want to end it on what our folks can do. So just as we begin to close out our conversation today, you know, you're talking to a group of listeners that care about this issue or they wouldn't listen to the episode. What are three things they could do right now, today, in their practice that would make a difference in terms of adding equity into the response around child protection? The first thing I'll say connects to the anecdote we just talked about with that child that's looking for their parents, but it is a positive note. I think that one of the first things we can do is remind ourselves that kids want their parents to be okay. Yes. Reminding ourselves, you think about taking care of kids and, and saving kids and protecting kids, remind yourself that 
You know, these kids, what they want deep down is for mom and dad to be okay. Even if at that moment, they're not so okay. So what can we do to help their parents be okay? Mm -hmm. So remind yourself of that in the work you're doing. Secondly, I'm going to go back to making sure that you know that you can make a difference based on the person in front of you, the family in front of you, the mom in front of you, the youth in front of you. There are so many things going on in Washington and your state legislatures But what can you do when a family is sitting in the lobby waiting to see you in your office or when you're in front of them on their doorstep to assure them that you see them and that you respect them and that you want to partner with them? So just remind yourself that you can make a difference right there in front of the person you're talking to. Thirdly, I talk a lot about momentum. You know, we're all motivated, but how do you keep the momentum? I want you to realize that This is a marathon, not a sprint. So be kind to yourself. I want to remind you all that you wanting to make a difference and you listening to this podcast, you going to trainings, you talking about things that make people uncomfortable is good. You know, you don't want to sit and be content with being comfortable, but you're pushing yourself again because you're trying your best to to talk about these things. So I would say continue to do that. Continue to talk about it and create some protected time to talk to people that are like-minded. And it's okay to say, I just met a family and some things are coming up for me and I wanna talk about it so that these things that are coming up don't negatively impact this family. That's not confessing anything wrong. That's being a brave professional who's saying, I care about this family and I want some help. I wanna talk to a colleague. So I, I encourage you to build new habits around being upfront and honest and accountable. Is there anything that I should have asked you and didn't or anything else you want to make sure that you tell our listeners today? I think the only last thing that I will say is a quote that I always close out on, and it means the world to me. And I'm pretty sure I said it at your conference because sometimes it feels like the ship is already, you know, leaving the harbor and we've missed it and we we can't turn back and we can't fix what's going on. And the quote is, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. But the next best time is right now. So I just want to encourage people that I know sometimes it feels like this has been going on for so many years. It's above my head. But we can start planting new seeds right now in your organization, in your office. When you're talking to families and parents, you're planting new seeds of how that person, of how that youth is going to view the child welfare system. Often it's through how you interact with them. So I encourage you all to plant new seeds because it's not too late. Thank you so much, Dr. Price. I enjoyed our conversation before and I've enjoyed it even more now. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to One in 10. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. And for more information about this episode or any of our others, please visit our website at oneintenpodcast.org.